Well, we are now back in um, our lessons in Christology. And if you remember, Christology is that uh, field of theology that looks at the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, and there's a beautiful harmonization between who Christ is and what he has done for us. We aren't to... Um, we are to distinguish the person and the work of Christ, but we aren't to separate the person and the work of Christ. And there's anything that we are to, to know as Christians, it is to be the person and the work of Christ. Uh, the majority of the songs that we sing, the things that we hear about, um, is about Jesus Christ. And if you remember last time we were together, we were going through what is called uh, the Passion of Christ. And it's that series of time when uh, Jesus Christ uh, is betrayed, um, he's put on trial, and this ultimately leads up to his death. Uh, so we were looking at the the, um, the passion of Christ, specifically of the sacrifice of Christ and what's going on there. Because I think a lot of times when we think of the cross, we merely think of a man dying who is truly God, he's dying. But uh, we, we don't merely, we can't make sense of what's actually happening uh, on the cross. So what I want to do this evening is I want, us to, I want to go back a few lessons, and I'm actually combining two lessons into one, and re, sort of a review for us to learn about the sacrifice of Christ. And then next week, uh, we're going to, I'm going to do, uh, reteach a lesson that I did on um, whether... The father turned his face from the son. And I'll add some more things to that, um, answer some more questions and objections that might be raised in that. But this evening I want to look at uh, the sacrifice of Christ and what's actually happening uh, when Christ is on the cross. Uh, again, I don't want to think that it's merely one who is dying, uh, which it is one who is dying, but what does his death actually mean? What is he doing? What is Christ doing when he's offering himself up? And how are we to think of the cross of Christ. I think a lot of times when we think of the cross of Christ, we think of Jesus Christ uh, puts himself in our way because the Father is really angry. So in order to appease the Father's anger, he jumps on the grenade of the Father's wrath for us. Um, and we have to think of the sacrifice of Christ in that manner, that God is very angry, Jesus comes, he dies, and then God's, God goes from being angry at us now to being loving with us. Um, we aren't to, and I think a lot of times people have reworded John 3.16, where they think of rather the Father loving the world, the Father hated the world, that he sent his Son to, in order that he may love the world. And we aren't to think in that manner, okay? Um, I've been having talks with a lot of the guys in the church and one thing that's apparent, and I think that they're learning, is that whatever we say about God's works must be consistent with who God is. We must be consistent with who God is, okay? So let's first answer the question of the nature of sacrifice, the nature of sacrifice. And many of this is going to be review. It should be review uh, for, for all of us. But the nature of sacrifice. Uh, there are many ways that we can talk about sacrifice in the English language. Uh, and the most common way in which people speak of sacrifice today is either in relation to acts of temperance 
are acts of fortitude. So we have sacrifice. There's two ways people think of sacrifice. Temperance or acts of fortitude. The first, the first is the act of fortitude. Uh, and the, the act of fortitude is defined as mental and emotional strength in facing difficulty, adversity, danger, or temptation courageously. Let me give you an example. A man on a battlefield has a grenade thrown in the midst of his unit. And in an act of sacrifice, he jumps on the weapon to save the other men. That's an act of fortitude. Uh, the soldier jumping on the grenade to save the unit uh, is an act of fortitude. He's courageously sacrificing himself for the good of others. In addition to the act of fortitude, there's also the act of temperance. And temperance simply means restraint. Uh, it's an act of sacrifice by holding oneself back. Example, a father uh, that's indifference with his family denies himself of uh, particular desires that he has in order to fulfill the desires of others. So the father, especially myself, uh, I know well that if I buy that collection of books uh, that's on sale, then I probably won't have money to buy diapers. So I'm restraining myself from those collection of books for the good of others. That's temperance or the act of temperance. These are noble virtues. Uh, however, these are not in the sense in which Christ offers himself up as a sacrifice. Christ does not offer himself as a sacrifice. Um, and when Christ offers himself as a sacrifice on the cross, he's not acting in fortitude, uh, where he jumps on the grenade of God's wrath for the betterment of others. Like he's taking upon our God's wrath uh, so that we don't have to. Um, there is an element there, but it's not uh, explicitly that. Nor is Christ acting in temperance, where he's restraining himself for the good of the church. But rather, the sacrifice that Christ offers up is an act of justice. The sacrifice that Christ offers up is an act of justice. In other words, the sacrifice that Christ offers up um, is a sacrifice that God is rightly owed. So the sacrifice that Christ offers up is a sacrifice that God is rightly owed. God is owed a payment for sin. And this is important for us to understand the rest of what's going on. God is owed a payment for sin. And out of love and justice for who God is, Christ offers a sacrifice both inwardly and outwardly. Again, out of love and justice for who God is, Christ offers a sacrifice both inwardly and outwardly. And saints, that's the type of sacrifice that is pleasing to God. The one who is offering the sacrifice must offer a sacrifice that is proper both outwardly and inwardly. You know this well. When someone gives you a gift and they say, here, well, it might be something that you want, but if they offer it and they give it to you in an, in, in an improper way, inwardly, you're not going to want it. Same thing with sacrifices with relation to God. This is clearly stated in Psalm 51, verses 16 to 17. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Here we see the sacrifices that God delights in are one that has a proper heart posture. 
And that inward proper heart posture sees itself out visibly in the sacrifice. Saints, this is how we to think of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. A sacrifice that Christ offers up is one that is both properly inwardly and also properly outwardly. As sinners, we are infinitely in debt with God. Infinitely in debt with God. That which we owe by nature, which is worship to God, because of sin takes on a legal component. The sinner owes to God a payment in order to satisfy the justice of God. We know of this in the legal courtroom, do we not? When one commits a crime, in order for their uh, crime uh, to be acquitted, or in order for uh, the judge or the law to receive justice, uh, that person must receive some sort of punishment. And also, too, the law or the judge or the state must receive uh, some sort of payment from the criminal. This is how we to think of the cross, that the sinner owes to God a payment in order to satisfy the justice of God. We must offer both a proper sacrifice of inward and outward worship to satisfy the justice of God. Now, what's the problem with that? What's the problem with us offering an inward and outward sacrifice to God in order to satisfy his justice? None of us can do it. That is the big problem with the sacrificial system, is it not? That it can take away sin, but not forever. Because you need to offer another sacrifice. So we can't give to God what he's properly owed. Man can never suffer enough to make satisfaction. This is important because I've heard people say, well, wouldn't the, 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 the sinner uh, spending an eternity in hell, wouldn't that person satisfy the justice of God? No. Man can never make enough, uh, can never offer enough to make satisfaction. Man can never offer the best of the best and say, here, God, this is for you to make satisfaction. Nor can man ever be sorrowful enough to make satisfaction. And see what I did there? Man can never offer something, the best of the best outwardly, nor can man be sorrowful enough, cut at the heart enough, the inward sacrifice in order to appease God. So God, rich in his mercy, gives to man someone who would satisfy him. That's the greatness of the gospel, is it not? That we cannot do X, therefore God, rich in his mercy, does X for us. We can offer to God a proper sacrifice, so God gives to us a sacrifice. Very, very mysterious, but glorious. So how does the justice of God uh, be, become satisfied? How does God, how does God become satisfied in, in, um, in his justice? If we can't do it, who does, which you, I'm sure you know, but how does he, how does he, how does Christ satisfy the justice of God? 
Let's first answer, what does it mean to speak of satisfaction? Richard Muller says, satisfaction means making amends or reparation. Uh, specifically, the making amends for sin required by God for forgiveness to take place. So simply put, to satisfy is to repair. To satisfy is to repair or to make up a wrongdoing. To make up a wrongdoing. Paul speaks of this uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 through 19. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God has, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. So Paul um, speaks of this message of reconciliation. And at the heart of reconciliation is satisfaction. Notice Paul saying, how, do, how does God reconcile us to himself? Through a mediator, Jesus Christ. So at the heart of bringing two parties together is Christ. Now there are many theories of how an infinitely just God can be reconciled to a people who deserve an infinite punishment. How can... An infinitely just God be brought together to a people who owe an infinite punishment. The Roman Catholic Church says satisfaction comes through faith and obedience, as well as participation in the sacraments and suffering and purgatory. The Eastern Orthodox Church says we grow more and more like the divine in this life, through mystical union, through the liturgy and sacraments, until one day we are united to the divine. So see, here we see in the Roman Catholic Church and in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they place a big emphasis on the sacraments because the sacraments have saving power in them. And the average person says that we can earn our way to God by just becoming or being a good person. Essentially, these three systems are saying one thing, that man has a part to play in making satisfaction. That man has a part to play in bringing two parties together. That Christ has done his part, now we have to do our part. How do we respond to this? Can man earn anything from God? Can man make satisfaction to deliver ourselves from God's justice and wrath? The Bible is crystal clear on this question. No, man cannot do anything in and of himself to make or, uh, or bring um, 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 satisfaction. Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Man can't satisfy the justice of God. Not because man can't do enough. Here's an important distinction to make here. That the reason why you cannot satisfy the justice of God is not because you can't do enough. But man can't satisfy the justice of God because the value of the offering. Man can't satisfy the justice of God because of the value of the offering. And friends, this brings us back to Adam's sin in the garden. Saints, why do people deserve an eternity in hell because of Adam's sin? Have you ever thought of that question? One sin deserves an eternity 
in hell. Doesn't make any sense, does it not? The reason is because when Adam sinned in the garden, he sinned against an infinite being. When Adam sinned in the garden, he sinned against an infinite being. And because he sinned against an infinite being, he deserves an infinite punishment. We know of this well in our legal system, that the punishment must fit the crime. Someone doesn't get locked up for life because they stole a pack of bubble gum. People get locked up for life for taking a life. Or you must give your life. So if one sins against the king, it carries a more severe punishment. If one sins against God, it carries an infinite punishment. Because God is infinite. This is so important, especially when we are preaching the gospel to our family and friends. That there is a link between your spending or your punishment in hell to the nature of God. God is infinite, therefore your punishment is infinite. So, in our case, how do we make satisfaction to an infinite eternal God? How do we, how do we do it then? Can we offer up an infinite amount of money? No, because that's impossible to do. How can an infinite amount of debt be removed from our account? The Canons of Dort say this, and this is one of the most succinct summaries of the gospel and I think of all of the 16th and 17th century uh, confessional literature. It says, Since, however, we ourselves cannot give this satisfaction or deliver ourselves from God's anger, God in his boundless mercy has given to us a guarantee, his only begotten son, who was made to be sin and a curse for us in our place on the cross in order that he might give satisfaction for us. Beautiful, right? But I think John the Baptist says it best in John Chapter 1, verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What did John the Baptist see? He didn't see a potential Savior, but he saw the only Savior for the world. Jesus Christ is the only answer to satisfaction and reconciliation. It's not through the liturgy. It's not through our own works, but it's through Christ. He's the only one who can remove the infinite debt we owe and satisfy justice of God. Now, notice what I said. Christ is the only one who can remove an infinite debt. How does he do that? Is it because he has an infinite amount of money? Is it because he lived an infinite good life? How does Jesus satisfy the justice or the wrath of God? Well, some will say that Jesus satisfies the wrath or justice of God because the wrath of God was poured out on him on the cross. So they think of they think when Jesus is on the cross, God is pouring out all of this wrath. God is sort of emptying the jar of his anger and hatred that has, that has been built up and stored up for since Adam's sin. And it's all given to Christ. Christ absorbs it and exhausts it. 
And because of that, no more wrath. Some will say that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God by living a life of perfect obedience, which climaxed at his death on the cross. Now, I, I, I like that view more than um, Jesus satisfies the wrath of God because some wrath is being poured out on him. The correct answer is Jesus satisfies the wrath and justice of God because of the great value and worth of his person. Jesus satisfies the wrath and justice of God because of the great value and worth of his person. And also, I would add, and the love and obedience by which he offers himself up to God. See where this outward and inward sacrifice now comes back into play? Where I said that in order for a sacrifice to be proper, you must offer the best, but also your heart must be cut Jesus Christ offers himself outwardly and also inwardly because he loves and obeys his Father. The Canons of Dort say this, This death of God's Son is the only and entirely complete sacrifice and satisfaction for sins. And hear what it says. It is of infinite worth and value, more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. And when they mean world, they mean everybody. The death of Christ is of such great value and worth for the reason that the person who suffered is truly God. The death of Christ is of such great value and worth for the reason that the person who suffered, although he suffers as man, is truly God. And because Christ is an infinite person, and here's the connection here to the infinite debt that we owe to God, because Christ is an infinite person, because he's truly God, his sufferings are of infinite value. Therefore, he can remove the infinite debt that we owe to God. Richard Muller explains, the source of the merit of Christ is the person of Christ who performs the work of satisfaction. Since the person is the divine word, the second person of the Trinity, the work performed by that person, even though accomplished through the instrumentality of his human nature, must be infinite. So what he's saying is, even though Christ dies, with respect to his humanity, that doesn't negate that he's truly God. In other words, even though Christ suffers as man, his suffering is of infinite worth because he's a divine person. One drop of Christ's blood was sufficient enough to atone for the sins of the entire world. Think about that, saints. When we say that Christ didn't die for every single person, it's not because Christ's blood wasn't sufficient enough to die for every single person. Like if Christ maybe suffered for like five more hours... Or if he would have um, drew maybe a little bit more blood. Maybe lived, you know, not to 33 years, but maybe 50 years. He would have been able to atone for more people. It's not how we would think. If God so willed to save every single person, then Christ's blood was sufficient to save every single person. And I would even say, even at Christ's, bat- uh, at Christ's circumcision, 
The drop of blood from the baby Jesus was enough to atone for the sins of the entire world. Example, uh, which is more valuable when you are gifted it? And if you are uh, um, gracious enough to receive this, then praise God. But what's more valuable, uh, a ring from Tiffany's or a ring pop from the corner store? Which one would you value more? The ring from Tiffany's. If you lost the ring from Tiffany's, you would go crazy because there is value, intrinsic value in that. Well, similar with Christ. There is intrinsic value in Jesus Christ. He's not a mere man that suffers and dies, but he's the God-man. In fact, uh, Thomas Aquinas would say, that the very least of one of Christ's sufferings was sufficient of itself to redeem the human race from all their sins. So here were the, just, if Christ even suffered for a split second, it would be enough to, to, to atone for the sins of the entire world. And the reason he can say that is because Christ is truly God. <clears throat> Christ offers himself up, and when he does, he offers up a sufficient, a more than sufficient sacrifice, but it was super abundant. It was more than enough that if Christ wanted to redeem the whole human race, he could have. Um, I was going to give you an illustration, but that would take too long. When we think about Christ, Jesus Christ offers the most precious and perfect sacrifice something more valuable than the crime that was committed. And that was himself. John Owen makes this point. He says, God was more delighted and pleased with all than he was displeased and offended with all the sins of all those that he had suffered and offered himself for. And hear what he says here. God was more pleased with the obedience, offering, and the sacrifice of his son than displeased with the sins and rebellions of all the elect. We read in our Confession of Faith this morning in chapter 3, um, paragraph 3, that God elects or predestinates people to the salvation, to their salvation through Christ. But he also predestinates the non-elect to the praise of his glorious justice. Those who are suffering in hell are giving to God justice. And here John Owen says that when Christ offers himself up, that is a more and a better demonstration of justice than the elect suffering in hell. Both are giving justice to God, but Christ is a more better demonstration of justice. Christ more fully satisfies the justice of God in offering his infinite person as a sacrifice. And God is more pleased with that demonstration than punishing the elect in hell for all eternity. <clears throat> this is why we can say that there never was a time on the cross when the father was displeased with his son. In fact, if there ever was a time when God the father was pleased with the son, it was on the cross because Christ's sacrifice was a pleasing aroma to God. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 says, And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself for you. 
for us. And hear what it says here. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. When God looks down upon the cross and he sees his son suffering, it is a pleasing aroma. Why is it a pleasing aroma? Because Christ offers both a proper sacrifice outwardly and inwardly. Those are the sacrifices that God takes the light in. Notice, saints, that this is so different than how people think of the cross of Christ and how he satisfies divine justice. That Jesus Christ satisfies divine justice because he dies. That's all he needed to do. He needed to die. But here we're saying it goes beyond just merely him dying. But what is he offering? And what is his heart posture? God so loves the love by which Christ shows for him in his death on the cross because Christ in his death is outwardly demonstrating the value and worth of all that God is. That God, you are owed this. You are so great. And my people have sinned against a holy and great one. Here I am. Christ shows the great worth of God by offering a sacrifice that matches his worth. A superabundant sacrifice that's without value. Again, Christ shows the great heinousness of sin, the great value of God by offering something that is just as valuable himself. That's a great summary of our study today. That we need an an infinite and eternal sacrifice to counter our infinite and eternal punishment. Just as if you're to get out of debt for a million dollars, you need a million dollars, if not more. Well, Christ goes for us, and he does for us what we can never do for ourselves. And the great news of the gospel is that in Christ, we have that infinite and eternal sacrifice that has satisfied the justice of God. So when God sees you, He bangs the gavel and says that you are not guilty of any crime that you've committed. And not just for a year, not just for a month, not just for, you know, 10 years, but for all eternity. Because you are in that eternal one who offered himself up to take away that ancient debt that we have received in Adam. I want you to think of the sacrifice of Christ in this manner, if you could, that when Christ offers himself up, he's not merely just removing wrath for us, but he's doing much more. Jesus satisfies the justice of God by offering a most pleasing aroma of sacrifice, which is himself. And saints, What I hope you see from this lesson is that our salvation is solely found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That when we think of our salvation of Christ, in Christ, we aren't to think that we merely have a man savior, we have a God savior. It is God who saved us. It is God who lived for us. It is God who died for us. Although through the instrumentality of his his humanity, Nevertheless, he is truly God. And we are to thank Christ for what he has done for us, right? Uh, that the infinite debt that we owed, 
Christ offers an infinite self. Thereby, we can now live uh, for all eternity with our triune God. Let's pray.